Um, so for the last three weeks, uh, we've been in a sermon series entitled Revive. And we've been looking at um, revival through uh, some of the Old Testament kings. And a, a key text that is threading together all of these sermons is Second Chronicles 7.14, and which reads, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So within that, that verse there, you have a number of components that are essential to revival. Okay, so um, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Josiah um, and this idea of humbling yourselves, of, of coming to the Lord in humility, of, of, of bowing down. Last week, um, Sean talked through Asa, King Asa, and the concept of seeking the face of the Lord. And so today we're going to look at uh, Jehoshaphat and the concept of prayer. Okay, prayer is such an important uh, thing in the life of believers. And so we're going to be looking at the life of King Jehoshaphat and how prayer factored in to his walk with the Lord. So before we look at that text, um, and I'll give you a heads up, you can thumb to your Bible right now, we're going to be looking at Second Chronicles Chapter 20, verses 5 through 23. But before we get there, I want to start with a little bit of a confession. Because I, f- I figure, you know, you mentioned the word confession, and the preacher's standing up here saying they're going to make a confession, and all, all of a sudden I've got your attention. <laughs> like, oh, it's going to be juicy, right? Well, it's a confession. I, um, every time I've been reading this passage, and I, I read the word Jehoshaphat, I can't help hearing it in the voice of Sean Connery. <laughs> don't know why. But I'll be reading it, and all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, Jehoshaphat. You know, and it just, you know, I just want to lay that out there. That, you know, in case it's a, a little theological nugget for some of you uh, to, to marinate. Um, and besides, it makes a you know, change from Morgan Freeman uh, usually narrating my Bible passages. So... <laughs> I don't know if I can do more than three, but so uh, that's my confession as we read through this. Hopefully that won't be a distraction at all. So let's turn to uh, chapter 20. Um, and I was, you know, I was going to lay some context out for you, but actually I, I want to read the passage first because I just want the word to sink into you. Um, and then we'll come back to some context. So this is chapter 20, uh, book of Second Chronicles, and we're beginning at verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat, I I promise I'll stop, stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, 
whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them, and he did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. In case you were going to get him confused with that other Jehaziel. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up as the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. And this is where it gets really pretty cool. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were rooted. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So that's a pretty amazing passage of Scripture, I think. Um, We get to see the prayer of an Old Testament king, And then we get to see the results and the outworkings of that prayer. So before we we dig into this passage a little bit, I want to give us a little context. Okay, context, context, context. So important when you're studying scripture. Okay, there's a difference between uh, learning uh, a, a verse or two here or there that you use for encouragement and exhortment and all that kind of stuff. That's great. But when we're studying scripture sort of more in depth, you always want to be looking at what's coming before this passage, what's coming after it, to place it in context. Otherwise, it's very easy to misunderstand what the Scriptures are speaking to us. So, um, last week we talked about Asa. And so Jehoshaphat um, took up the throne after Asa. Asa died um, of a foot disease. And we're probably looking around the time frame of like 872, 873 B.C., uh, somewhere around there that uh, Jehoshaphat took the throne. Now, the reason I, I throw out the date there 
There's a couple of reasons. One, it's to remind us that uh, this is a history book. Okay? We are, we're looking at history here. This is real history. This is not made up. This is reliable history. And it's important that we remember all these things took place in a context. They took place in a time, in a year, or over a period of years. So I just wanted to keep that before us. This is a history book, okay? Um, and the other reason is, yeah, just to remind us that these events took place just like other historical events that we take for granted. Um, Battle of Hastings, 1066. Um, World War I and Two. You know, even the, uh, the American Revolution, which pains me, but... <laughs> Well, I think at that point, wasn't it really the Brits fighting the Brits? I mean, they just, you know, one, one group said, okay, we've got to do something to distinguish ourselves. Yeah. So they said, how about we say tomato? Okay. <laughs> you say tomato, we say tomato, and then we know the difference. <laughs> but it's real, it's real history, you know what I'm saying? Um, so um, Jehoshaphat succeeds Asa, takes over the throne, and... Um, Jehoshaphat was king of uh, the uh, kingdom of Judah. Okay? There was two, two kingdoms that had split. There was originally the, the full uh, united monarchy of Israel, which uh, was first under King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. And after Solomon, uh, the kingdoms uh, split uh, because there was a disagreement about the new king. And so ten tribes went to the north, or the ten northern tribes broke off from the two southern tribes. So you've got what's sometimes called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, or sometimes it's called the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And what's very interesting is that the, the kingdom of Israel, um, there wasn't one good king in any of their kings. All their kings did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. It was only in the kingdom of Judah that there were some good kings. Um, and, so, and of course, you can find the details of all the kings and their stories and their exploits uh, in the Book of Kings, surprisingly, um, and also the Chronicles as well. They, they offer some parallel uh, and additional information. So I really encourage you to study the, the Book of Kings, Kings 1 and 2 and Chronicles 1 and 2, for a fuller picture of, of uh, the kings throughout the northern and southern kingdoms. So Asa comes to the throne, and he starts off really well. Okay, um, He says, The favor of the Lord uh, was on Jehoshaphat. And he was following in the footsteps of King David. He was t- tearing down the high places and uh, the, the, the worship of uh, uh, idolatrous gods like Baal, um, Canaanite gods. He was getting rid of all that and really focusing on, on worshiping the one true Lord. Uh, and on top of that, he sent officials uh, and teachers of the law out into the city to teach the law, to teach the scriptures. Um, which, you know, that time was probably uh, the, five, uh, the five books of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Mosaic law. And so there was, there was real revival going on in the city because that people were learning about the ways of the Lord. They were studying Scripture, and they were being taught in those ways. So everything's going great. And on top of that, he's got a giant army, and the nations around um, Judah are paying tribute to them. They're sending money. And it says the dread of the Lord was on the surrounding nations. Okay? So this was really a, a, a you know, to, it just shows how when you are walking in God's ways, he will bless you. Okay? That doesn't always look like a material blessing, but in this case, it was. Everything's going great. And then he decides to ally himself with Ahab, who's the present king of Israel. Not a wise idea. Ahab's married to Jezebel. 
Now, even if you don't know a lot about Jezebel, we all kind of know that name, and it's not usually a, it's not usually a good sign, is it? I don't hear too many people calling their, their newborns Jezebel in church. Yeah. What's her name? <laughs> Jezebel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so he allies, allies himself with Ahab through marriage. He marries one of his daughters. And he's, he's hanging out with Ahab one day, and Ahab says to him, hey, um, you want to join forces with me? And uh, let's make an attack and regain Ramath-Gilead, which is uh, an area would be present-day Jordan. And it's under control by some, some, uh, some other factions. And um, uh, Jehoshaphat says, oh, sure, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's, let's go and reclaim Ramoth-Gilead. By the way, Ramoth-Gilead has a Lord of the Rings sound to it, doesn't it? It's just so... <laughs> That's what Jonathan said. Uh, yeah, you can almost see it, like, you know... Uh, Meet me on the plains of Ramoth Gilead. When the sun dawns, look for the one-legged horse. You know, it's a Ramoth Gilead. It's, you know, it's just very Lord of the Rings. So Jehoshaphat says, sure. Yeah, let's, you know, let's do this. Sounds like a good idea to me. So Ahab's like, great. Um, but Jehoshaphat, being a man of God, he says, well, how about, can we, um, let's consult some prophets first. So Ahab gets his 400 prophets together. Now remember, they're, they're not the good guys. This isn't the good kingdom, so his prophets are kind of not really the real deal. And so they say, absolute, you're going to go out and you're going to clear the field. And uh, Jehoshaphat says, well, do you have anybody else who might be able to uh, uh, hear from the Lord on this? And Ahab says, well, there is this one other guy called Micaiah, but I, you know, I really don't like the guy because he never says good things about me. <laughs> Funny that. Um, so he says, fair enough, bring, I'll bring him forward, let's see what he has to say. And Micaiah at first says, yeah, you know, everything's going to be great, you're going you're gonna to clear the field. And um, Ahab, he's no fool, he says, hang on a second, what am I paying you for? Come on. So he says, okay, well, the deal is actually that you're going to lose. Uh, it's going to be scattered with... Uh, uh, dead soldiers from the kingdoms of Israel. And so Ahab doesn't like that, throws him in jail. <laughs> and they go out anyway. So Ahab, he's kind of a wily fella, and he says to Jehoshaphat, hey, I've got a plan. I'm going to, I'm just going to wear normal robes, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to wear my kingly robes. I'm just going to dress like a normal soldier, okay? But you, you should put on your kingly robes. So everybody knows who you are. And so that's what happens. They go into battle, and Ahab just looks like a regular soldier, and um, Jehoshaphat's dressed as a king, and of course, they go for him. They say, there's the king, let's take the king out. Um, Jehoshaphat panics, does a bit of a a Scooby-Doo, you know, where they kind of do the circular run, calls out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers him. He saves him. Okay, the soldiers withdraw he manages to escape back to, to Judah, to Jerusalem. As fate would have it, Ahab ends up taking an arrow, gets through the chink of his armor, um, and he, uh, he's taken off the battlefield and ends up dying later that day. So that's the end of Ahab. Jehoshaphat comes back to Jerusalem, is reprimanded by Jehu the prophet. He says, what were you thinking? You're an idiot, blah de blah and again, Jehoshaphat has this uh, revival in his heart. He turns back to the Lord. He says, um, okay, yeah, I made an, you know, what, what a foolish thing to do. And he does the same thing again in terms of um, 
reinstating the laws of the Lord, teaching in the cities. And again, this time of peace uh, returns. One of the things Jehu says actually to uh, Jehoshaphat when he's repentant, it's very encouraging. He says, um, there is some good in you, for you have set your heart to seek the Lord. And so despite all the wrongs he'd done, disobeying the Lord, allying himself with the evil king of Israel, the Lord still forgives him and gives him a second chance. And that should be really encouraging to all of us um, when we feel like, you know, the Lord's not going to give us a second chance. He'll always give you a second chance if you repent and turn. It's unquestionable. So everything's going fine. And then Jehoshaphat receives word that Moab, Ammon, and the Menuhites are getting ready to make war on Judah. And so that's where we arrive at the text we just read. Jehoshaphat is, is facing an attack um, from these different armies, and it sounds like he's numbered. And so what does he do? He, he turns to the Lord again. Okay, he turns to the Lord and, and cries out to the Lord. And so what we read, starting at chap, uh, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 20, was Jehoshaphat's prayer. This was the prayer he prayed to the Lord. And so I want us to, we're going to take a look at the prayer a little bit and just see what are some of the things we can take away from this prayer. Um, so the first thing is, it was a, it's what's known as a national lament. This was a, a lament prayer that Jehoshaphat prayed. And, and as I was reading that, I, I suddenly thought, wow, what, wouldn't that be amazing if our country or any country of the world actually did a, a national lament of prayer? How the Lord would, would move if any country was willing to do that, was willing to humble themselves. But if we look at his prayer, he begins with praise and adoration. He says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not the ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands, so no one can stand against you. So despite what's going on, he doesn't jump straight into, Lord, help us. You know, First thing he does, he declares the goodness of God and his mighty power. The second thing he does is he recounts God's promises and the things God has done through the past and the promises he has made. And then finally, he gets to the place of asking the Lord to deliver them. And he does this by an admission of powerlessness, by, by admitting that they are powerless without the Lord, that they can't do anything without the Lord. It says, and this is in verse 12, For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But then very importantly, he adds, but our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. So you can be in this place of desperation. And you don't know how you're going to get out of it. You don't know how the Lord is going to, um, is going to help you. But that doesn't deter you from keeping your eyes on the Lord. Seeking his gaze. After the admission of powerlessness, which in a sense, what is that? That's humility, right? That's coming before the Lord and saying, I'm nothing without you. There's a posture of expectation, faith, and thanksgiving. So you make your prayer, 
And then you wait expectantly in faith that the Lord will answer that prayer. Now, after he's made this prayer, the prophet uh, Jehaziel declares what what, uh, is often called um, a salvation oracle, right? Um, It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, right? And he said, listen, all Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great miracle, for the battle is not yours, but is God's. Do you realize that whatever you're going through in life, right? And we all have battles, don't we? Every one of us. Some are major battles, some are minor battles, but there's always some kind of struggle going, in on, going on in our lives, which we can define as battles. Don't you realize the battle is not yours? It's the Lord's. But you have to give it to Him. You have to let go and say, Lord, here it is. Here's my fight that I can't win. Is the fight that you can win. And I place it in your hands. And of course, with that, there has to come humility and submission because you're letting go of something. You're letting go of a little bit of power when you do that, aren't you? There's no better hands for it to be in. So Jehaziel, he gives this salvation oracle. And I always equate this a little bit to, you know, we were talking about Lord of the Rings. And, you know, you ever watch these, um, these action movies, right? And they're going out for the, for the big battle, Right? And all the horses are lined up, right? And the king is riding past them. And he, you know, he gives this speech about how we shall be victorious. And, you know, it's kind of like a typical Hollywood move. You have to have this before the battle scene, right? The rousing speech. Well, this is what Jehaziel's doing here. He's, he's exhorting the people. He's saying, come on, we can do this. The battle is the Lord's. And so what are the results of Jehoshaphat's prayer? Victory, victory in the Lord. And on top of that, the Lord is glorified through that victory. You know, it says here that um, the Lord set ambushes. And how was that done? It was done through the praise and the worship, through the singing. Do you realize that when, when you come here on a Sunday morning and we worship together and we sing songs, There is power in that. You're actually making spiritual warfare when you do that. As you sing the praises of the Lord, the devil hates that because you're you're making an act of spiritual warfare by declaring the praises and the glory of God. And so I would say never, um, never underestimate the power of corporate worship or corporate prayer. There's something powerful about when the people of God come together. It's not enough just to pray and worship on your own. That is the whole point of the church. We come together in corporate prayer and worship because there's power in it. So we've looked a little bit at Jehoshaphat's prayer. Let's look a little bit more broadly now at what is prayer. Well, simply, a simple way of looking at prayer is it's conversation and relationship with God. Talk to him. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you him to talk to you uh, regularly. You know, not just here and there when you need something. That's not a relationship. But prayer is a conversation, a relationship with God. Prayer should be the business of our everyday life. We should be about prayer as a people of God. It should actually really be the number one priority in our life. We have nothing 
else we could do in life but pray. That would be enough, actually. Prayer is a discipline. Ever felt like you don't want to pray? <laughs> yeah? That's, that's normal. Okay, just feeling like, I, I, oh, I just don't feel like praying now. I just, I've, I've got too much to do. You know, it's a discipline, which means that a discipline is something that we have to engage in whether we're in the mood or not. I often say this to my piano students when I'm teaching them and I'm explaining the importance of practice. I say practice is a discipline. You don't just practice when you feel like you practice because then it, <laughs> you'll hardly practice. So prayer's not about the mood you're in. Prayer's an act. Uh, Luke 11 uh, tells us that when Jesus had finished praying. So there is a sense that uh, prayer is something you begin and it's something you end. There's an act to prayer. Okay? In the Bible, the Gospels are, give us many examples of Jesus going away to a secluded area and praying. And he finished praying. And yet, on the flip side, there's a sense of where prayer is a, is a deliberate act, where you are setting aside time to pray. But then there's also the sense that prayer is a lifestyle, that it should be continuous. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians uh, verse 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So there's also a sense of prayer should be a continuous thing going on in our lives. You can pray sitting in the car. You can pray uh, at the supermarket. You can always be in active conversation with the Lord. Prayer is a weapon. We've talked about that. It's an act of spiritual warfare. Prayer should be intentional. shouldn't be a last resort. How many times do you hear people say, well, I guess there's nothing left to do but pray? I mean, think about that. If you're leaving prayer till the end, you've taken one of the major weapons out of your arsenal. Instead, prayer should be the first thing you do and the last thing you do. So you've got to be intentional when you pray. And prayer should be persistent. You know, Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if you would take this cup away from me. And remember the parable of the persistent widow who keeps harassing the judge until she gets what she's asking for. God wants us to be persistent, okay? Persistence is the fruit of faith. When we persist at something, we're declaring faith over something. We're believing that God will answer our prayers by continually bringing our requests before the Lord. So what are some barriers to prayer? There's plenty of barriers, right? I think probably one of the, the number one barriers to prayer is busyness. You know, we live in a society uh, that glorifies busyness. Hey, how you doing? Oh, busy, busy, oh, busy. Wow, you must accomplish a lot, you know? Things going okay? Yeah, yeah, busy, busy. Oh, so busy. I'm really successful. But busyness actually is one of the number one enemies to prayer because what happens is we, uh, we decide, oh, I don't have enough time to pray. I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do that. How am I supposed to fit prayer into all of that? You know, Martin Luther, the reformer said, uh, he said something along the lines of, I have so much to do today that I better pray for three hours. Which is amazing. Imagine if we took that attitude, like, man, I have a crazy busy day. I somehow, I got to squeeze in three hours of prayer instead of my normal two. Okay. (laughs) I mean, what an attitude. And I guarantee you, somehow he managed to get everything done. 
did quite a lot in his life, Martin Luther. You know? So busyness. You know, if, we've got, if, we, if you've got time to binge watch your favorite Netflix series, right? And let's face it, we all somehow make time for that, don't we? Right? Then you've got time to pray and make it a regular part of your day. Another barrier to prayer is a lack of belief or faith in the effectiveness of prayer. There's an interesting phenomenon going on in today's society that I've noticed as we get more secular. There used to be a time when if something sad or tragic had happened to you, people would say, I'm so sorry, my prayers and thoughts are with you. And there's something reassuring about that. More and more today, what I hear is, my thoughts are with you. I don't need your thoughts. Your thoughts don't change anything. Your thoughts don't have any power unless you act on them. Your prayers, I will take your prayers, because your prayer does have the power to change things. Another barrier is lack of consistency. We, prayer needs to be regular. It's got to be a daily occurrence in your life, not just, like I say, when you feel like it, or maybe once a week, or, hey, I did my prayer on Sunday, I'm all set for the week. It's got to be consistent. And a lack of persistence is another barrier. Okay? And we give up too, too easily. Can I tell you that we have a little miracle in the room today, and that's our baby girl, Dove. And <laughs> she's a result of persistent prayer. We had to wait over eight years and come into a place where we weren't sure if it was ever going to happen. And I know a number of you in this room have, have been part of that persistent prayer. Never, never give up on asking and believing the Lord. And perhaps one last barrier to prayer, perhaps one of the, the hardest, uh, is guilt and self-condemnation. You ever been in a place where you feel like, I, I can't come before the Lord right now. I'm too full of sin. I'm, I feel too ashamed. I cannot approach the throne right now because I am so tainted and he is so holy that, you know, I'm just going to avoid him. You ever done that? You ever avoided somebody because you feel guilty or embarrassed about something and you avoid them? You see, you see him somewhere, you're like, oh. head down. Guilt, shame, condemnation, these things will keep you away from the Lord. And do not be deceived. This is a scheme right out of the pits of hell. Because shame, guilt, condemnation, they have one uh, desire, and that is to keep you away from the Lord to keep you out of his communion. And that is the last thing the Lord wants. He wants you to bring all that shame, to bring all that guilt, to bring all that condemnation, drop it right at his feet and say, Lord, forgive me. I want to turn around from this. I want to come back to you. I'm not perfect, but you know me. You know my heart. Look at these kings. They weren't perfect either. The Lord gave them a second chance. He'll give you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and forever if you are genuine in coming back to him. So, I want to wrap up just with a few practicals for prayer in your life. Number one, make or set aside a regular time for prayer. Make it an urgent issue in your life. Plan it. Find a time. Get up a little bit earlier if you have to. Stay up a bit later if you have to. Whatever you have to do, you must pray. You must pray. 
It's where all of our power comes from, is our relationship with the Lord. Engage Scripture when you pray. All right? This book's full of power. This is a living, breathing book that will speak to you. The Holy Spirit will illuminate this if you ask Him to. And as you engage Scripture, you can be praying through the Scripture. I like to do this sometimes. You know, I'll just you know, be reading something. Um, and it might be say, Oh, Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Yes, Lord, you are God in the heavens. We praise you. We thank you. you know, use Scripture as a way to pray. Number three, be persistent. We talked about that. Remember, persistence is the fruit of faith. Be open. Prayer is not a one-way stream, okay? Prayer is a conversation. It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue, okay? So leave time to listen to the Lord. Don't be just constantly rabbiting. Open your ears. Listen for what the Lord is speaking to you. Just as important as what you say. Expand your horizons when you pray. Don't just pray for yourselves or friends or family. That's all good and very needed. But how about praying for the church, praying for the pastors, praying for national and international issues? You know, everything going on in the world today, there's so much we can pray for, right? And the last tip I would say is learn to pray corporately. Learn to pray aloud for others. All right, I... I get this. A lot of people are like, I just, I don't like praying aloud. I feel really awkward. I feel like I'm going to say something stupid, maybe blasphemous. Um, <laughs> I've gone through that, trust me. I came from a Catholic background um, where we just say corporate prayers together, but they're, they're written out. But I encourage you to step out, be bold, pray for others, pray aloud, because you know what? God has gifted each and every one of you. If you've accepted Jesus, you've got your holy, his Holy Spirit is in you and he puts words and thoughts and petitions and prayers in each one of us that are meant to bless the church. They're meant to bless each other. Don't hold them in because you can't get over yourself. Right? Speak them out to the Lord. I want to leave you with a quote from uh, Martin Luther. One of the things I, loved about, I love about Luther is... <laughs> He kind of doesn't pull any punches, and he, he can sometimes be a bit obnoxious, um, which really gels with me. Um, but here's a quote from him. He says, you must learn to call on the Lord. Don't sit all alone or lie on the couch, shaking your head and letting your thoughts torture you. Don't worry about how to get out of your situation or brood about your terrible life, how miserable you feel and what a bad person you are. Instead, say, get a grip on yourself, you lazy bum. <laughs> Fall on your knees and raise your hands and eyes towards heaven. Read a psalm. Say the Lord's Prayer and tearfully tell God what you need. Isn't that good? It's kind of, you know, in a way he's saying, get out of your pity fest. Okay? Come to the Lord. And so finally, we we started talking about revival at the beginning of this series. And I know we're running short on time. But I wanted to throw this illustration out because I think it's really important. Um... You know, revival has these components to it, right? Humbling ourselves, seeking the face of the Lord, prayer. Next week, we're going to talk about turning from your wicked ways, and we're going to be looking at Hezekiah. Okay, so you've got a whole week to meditate on your wicked ways, all right? <laughs> it's going to be good, though. But in my, in my work as a chaplain, um, work in the hospital units, one of the words you don't want to hear is code blue, right? 
And those of you who've worked in the medical field know that code blue is not a good word. When that gets announced over the, uh, the PA, what that means is that there's a patient who's gone into cardiac or pulmonary arrest and they're dying. And you will see the whole medical team will, will bolt to that room. And it's, it's crazy. There's doctors, nurses everywhere, and they start administering uh, CPR using the defibrillators. And basically what's happened is that patient's dying. That patient's dying. And the doctors and the nurses are trying to resuscitate and to revive the patient. And it can be quite violent. It can be, you know, to the point where uh, some patients, especially elderly patients, they'll, they'll get broken ribs from it and all kinds of stuff from the, uh, the pounding that goes on. So much so, actually, that some patients, they will have on their medical form the initials DNR, which means do not resuscitate. And they've come to a point where they've, they've dealt with their illness so much that they know if, if, they, if they get to this place where they're going to essentially be dying, they don't want somebody to revive them. They don't want somebody to resuscitate them. They just want to go. We don't want to be DNR Christians. We want to be revived constantly in our lives. We need revival, and it's not a one-time deal. We need constantly reviving. We need resuscitating. We need the Holy Spirit to come in and just give us a jolt, bring us back to him, bring him back to his ways. And so as we respond this morning, I want you to think about that. Don't be a DNR Christian. Pray for his revival. Pray. Pray. That's your first step. Pray. 